And I think what we what we have done is is we've stopped doing 20 things and we're now doing, I don't know, five or six things, hopefully really well. Strange kind of situation that we have uh, philosophically where as a trade association, you're expected to spend a significant proportion of your time on the good of the industry, uh, which means you have this kind of quasi-charitable aspect to what you do. But of course, that doesn't pay the bills because the members don't fund you sufficiently to do all of that stuff. So you have to have a commercial. You've got to know what the members are talking about. You know, you can't be second guessing. Now, that party is just in the blood, having done that. And it's it's also getting out there and seeing all these people and listening. It's, to use a metaphor, it's, it's not about who can be the fastest growing tree anymore because there's a bloody great mountain overshadowing the forest that, that's going to kill all of you by taking the sunlight away. I think that's happened relatively quickly, but it's certainly there now that around the table globally, people understand that they have to work together. The, the people that we've got to be competing with now are Google and Facebook and Amazon and all of these giants, not beam up against IPC or timing against Bauer against Immediate. Even when I started 10 years ago, those people would barely sit in the same room as each other. Welcome to Content Talks brought to you by River Sounds, where we talk about how to get the best out of your content marketing investment. In this episode, we discuss B2B membership trends and how to maintain your members in an ever-changing market. To discuss this, we're joined by Chief Executive of PPA, Barry McElhenney, and CEO of FIP, James Hughes. Okay, to to start with, guys, um, before we get into a proper debate about the topics today, Barry, if you could just share with us um, your relationship with PPA and a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Yeah, so uh, I'm Barry McElhenney. I'm the Chief Executive of the PPA, the Professional Publishers Association. Uh, It used to be called the Periodical Publishers Association, uh, and that's maybe something we'll talk about why that changed, but it's now very much the Professional Publishers Association. Uh, we represent about 220 different publishing houses, big and small, uh, consumer, business to business, global, independent. Um, so we, we, you know, if people, if I meet people at a party and they ask me what I do, we represent the UK magazine industry. That's what we do. Excellent. And uh, James Hughes, if you could uh, share a little bit about yourself and uh, your relationship with uh, with FIP. Yeah, so FIP um, has a slightly more complicated acronym, which we don't use anymore. We were originally a French organisation, uh, La Fédération Internationale de la Presse Périodique. Oh, well I don't think you so, French, James. Well, you know, many hidden talents, Barry. Um, we don't really use that anymore. Similar to, to Barry, we kind of dropped the periodique, periodical bit, uh, and we just call ourselves FIP now. And if the PPA represents the UK industry, we're very much the same for the global industry. So the PPA are, are members of ours. And we try to take a view on international trade across the world. We have members everywhere from Japan to Chile, Canada to South Africa. Uh, and really, we're taking an international perspective on the industry. I came to FIP uh, only relatively recently, only been there about 18 months uh, from a background in publishing, and it's been really exciting to try and uh, get to grips with what's happening in the global industry, and we get great support from organizations like the PPA in understanding what's happening in different markets around the world, and we try to translate that into something that our members can use globally. Fantastic. Hey, to give a football analogy, the PPA is like the FA, <laughs> and a FIP is like FIFA minus the corruption. I'm glad you added that caveat, Barry. So James, James is like Seth Blatter. I, I'm sort of Trevor Brookie or somebody like yeah. that. Can we pick the new, there's some new people? Again? There's new people, aren't there? Yeah, I'll so be Janny and Fantino. I've got a bit more hair than him, yes. but that's fine. And you can be, I don't even know who's in charge of the FA these days. Some bloke so, used to run a supermarket, isn't it? Yeah, so we, we operate across the UK and these guys operate across globally. So it's brilliant for the PPA to be a member of it because yeah. we get to, mm. to hear what's going on around the world. You know, so I'll turn up at a FIP board meeting in New York or somewhere, and you'll hear from the Spanish Association, the French Association, the Germans, and it's really useful to, to, to work out not just where you are as an association, but where each, each market is. Mm-hmm. 
And vice versa, I think. I think consolidating together all the different views that we get from both member companies and organizations across the world gives us a kind of really global picture on what's happening in the industry. And we're able to then take that to back to our membership and show them examples of what's happening in, in different places. It gives them inspiration for their own business and helps them connect with each other and network with one another, which is really the, the major thing that we do. Fantastic. So could you just reiterate the relationship between FIP and the PPAs? Yeah, so the PPA... Barry, Barry's too polite to say he's one of my bosses. <laughs> <laughs> so the P, so, so the, the PPA represents the UK publishers, and then the PPA in turn is a member of FIP. So FIP, being the global magazine body, will have in it the PPA, the VDZ, which is the German organisation, the MPA, which is the American organisation. The PPA will have as its members Hearst, Condé Nast, Bauer, Immediate Media, etc., etc. So our, our, our interests in my day job stop within the UK. Uh, then I get that global perspective when I rock up at a FIP meeting or through some of the reports that FIP will send. So it works well together. Yeah. In turn, so we, we, have... we essentially, we pay FIP. That's the relationship. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I like to think it's mutually beneficial relationship. Symbiotic. I was going to say parasitic. Edit that bit out. Symbiotic relationship. Last week we were both in New York uh, at the MPA conference. That's Magazine Publishers of America, the American version of the PPA. So it's you know we 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 used to share an office in London. We're not in separate offices here, mm. but we meet quite a bit different parts of the world. Right. Did you meet knowing that you were both going to be there? Did you travel together? No, or? I didn't tell him. Just, right. you know. <laughs> it was a horrible surprise, actually. Yeah. I sort of knew that FIP would be there yeah. um, because it's... it's we're it's, everywhere. We're here, everywhere. we're there. Um, yeah. And then we have our big event, the PPA event, coming up in May. So we will have our annual festival. It's one of the things that publishing membership bodies do uh, is have an annual, a big annual event where you gather the clan together and we'll have ours in May and Fitball of theirs in November. Las Vegas in November, yeah. which we will be at. Yeah. Um, so today we're talking about organisations uh, and the importance of reinventing yourself uh, and maintaining organisational integrity. Um, so is it important to constantly reinvent your organisation um, or does that risk the integrity of your core beliefs? Um, well, I've been at the PPA nine years, believe it or not, nine years last week. Uh, and I think when I arrived, there was a pretty major change job that had to be done, a fairly major reinvention, just, sim just simply because the PPA has been around for over 100 years. Um, and it, it, it did a perfectly good job, but I, I suppose I felt when I arrived that we needed to, to modernise it and make it... Uh, just make sure, make really sure that it was really relevant to what its members wanted and needed. So we probably did a really big reinvention a year maybe after I arrived, because it takes some time, I think, with these jobs to fully get your head around it. Mm. And then since then, it's been, you know, organic invention here and there. And then we did another really big one about a year ago, uh, where we've moved offices, changed the team. Mm got some new strategic priorities and all of that is driven really by by the membership and by the by the market you know you can't exist as a membership body you can't exist in isolation you know there is no ppa without the members we, we may as well go home you know so you're driven by what they do and they've all reinvented they've all completely uh reshaped themselves so it would have been wrong for us not to have done a similar mm -hmm. thing do you look for um, feedback from your members once you reinvent yourself? Or Yeah, I mean, we, 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 the reinvention is driven by them in that we would go out and ask them initially, you know, um, are, where are, are we being relevant? Are we being mm. purposeful? Are we doing the right things? Fed partly by that, partly by your own instincts. You then make these changes and then, yeah, we check in with them that, that we're now doing what they want. And, you, you know, I'm sure James would agree with this. One of the first things you learn is you, you cannot please all of the members all of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and the most recent reinvention, there's no doubt that some of our members, some of our smaller members, who maybe want a more traditional offering, won't have liked what we have done. But, you know, we, we have to accept that um, and get new members, if we have to, elsewhere, who do like this kind of PPA. And it's a very different PPA from what it was 10 years ago. 
So how many of you as an organization, uh, do you, um, do you have a team of you that has to work together to make sure that you're not rebranding too much or? I think it's, I think it's important, you know, Barry's right. You've got to listen to the membership. You've got to use your mm-hmm. instinct. I think that's, that's really important because getting feedback, a bit like getting feedback from our readers in the magazine days, yeah. it's very difficult mm-hmm. and you have to balance that against your, your, your natural instinct and, and being proactive. You do rely on your team. I think your team have to be out there in the market understanding what's going on. But we're both very small organizations, you know, uh, less than 20 people in both cases. A bit more if you include some of the subsidiary organizations of the PPA. And so you, you, you have a kind of advantage and a disadvantage in that. The advantage is that you can move quite quickly um, and you can take account of what's happening in the market quickly. The disadvantage is that you don't have the muscle that people sometimes think you have. You know, they, they see the PPA or the FIP name and they assume that you're, you know, cast of thousands and, and, and uh, millions of pounds and all this kind of stuff. There's, there's nine, nine of you and there's, there's eight of us. So, I mean, you know, um, together we'd, we'd struggle to fit a large minibus. Um, <laughs> it's really about using those resources very effectively. And, and uh, you know, it's a, a bit like being a cat, right? You know, when a cat's threatened, it makes itself look bigger than it actually is. Well, yeah. we're not threatened, but we do want to make ourselves look bigger than we actually are and, and project the image of the industry not only internally, but externally as well to everybody mm. who's looking inwards to, to the media business. Um, so we have to be quite careful about how we use resources, but, but using those people effectively is one of the keys to the change that Barry's yeah. been talking about. I mean, I don't know if it's the same with FIT, but at the PPA, I, I had a strong feeling that we were doing too much mm. before. Um, maybe not too much for then, but too much for now. So mm. yeah. I remember, you know, I asked, um, I, I looked at some of the old board reports from from 10 or 15 years ago. And it was like war and peace, you know, these yeah. thick documents. Absolutely the same. Uh, and the PPA at that time, rightly or wrongly, was, was in every aspect of publishers' lives. You know, and I think there's a tendency in any membership organisation to creep. You know, you, there's the stuff you really have to do and then you start creeping into all aspects of your members' lives mm-hmm. if you're not careful. And I think what we what we have done is is we've stopped doing twenty things, and we're now doing I don't know five or six things, hopefully really well. Yeah. Um, is that the same with yeah, it's just fewer things and, done and better. Fewer things done better, and and less introspection. You know, one of my big messages that I got from the board very early on is they don't really care too much about the internal mechanisms yeah, of how so fit true. works, which, you know, there's a tendency as a chief who's had to stand up and say, isn't it great? We've done this and done that. And they don't, they don't they, care. They don't care. Mm. What they care is what you've actually done for them and for the industry. So we spend a lot more time talking about that now than we do talking about ourselves. And I think that's, that's really important. You know, FIP is just, is just a vehicle for the industry. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so you're empathizing more with your members, would you say? Yeah, I think that's really important. I yeah. think, I think a game with the PPA, I was, so I'm an ex publisher, same as James, ex editor. When I arrived at the PPA, I, I was sort of confounded by how much the people at the PPA talked about the PPA. Yeah. I, when I was a member of the PPA, I had no interest in where their office was or yeah. who was in charge of this or who sat where or what their job title was. And I think it's really easy with any membership organization to become um, introspective and insular and think it's kind of mm. all about us. Yeah, it's absolutely and not. The members couldn't care less, really, as long as you're serving what they need done as long as you're moving the dial and as long as you're relevant and you're not wasting their money fundamentally. Yeah. There must be those members that have the loudest voice that are quite interested in the politics behind Yeah, there are. But, you know, there are, large, there are large members and small members and the members with large voices and small voices. They're not always correlated. So, you know, our largest member, one of the largest magazine companies in the world, Meredith, doesn't really talk to us very much. We have some dialogue with their international people. We have some dialogue with their senior management. And I think we deliver a good service to them, but, you know, they're pretty, pretty quiet, quietly contented about it. We might have other members who've only got 10 or 20 people in their organization who shout about it all the time and want, you know, more and more and more. You have to balance that. Um, Barry and I were talking off air about, you know, how it's very often the, the one guy in an office who's trying to grow his business is the one who's engaging with you the, the mm. longest and the loudest. But you have to balance that against the needs of the big organization. The big organizations are great and they're our biggest supporters. They can often also be the ones that you have to coax out of the shell the most to, yeah. get, to get contribution and feedback from them, you know. Um, so that's a, a balancing act that you've got the whole time. Uh, it's something that, I, you know, we're working on. Again, Barry and I are talking off, off air about how 
the power of us as individuals is important going out and actually meeting these these senior folk and i was in the us last week very lucky to be able to meet the ceo of meredith the ceo of forbes and you know the ceo of various other media businesses out there there's no and substitute and there's no that. substitute no absolutely and and you know I, I came away from one of those meetings going well great you know we've we've they're basically they're in the bank for five more years because we've talked on a one-on-one basis about their needs and their requirements and that's that's really what some of them need. They, they do need that proactivity of you yeah. going and asking. Um, I mean, James Ty, who uh, is the chief executive of Dennis, who was the PPA chairman, he talks a lot about how chief executives now of any organization need to spend time on the business rather than in the business. Mm. And I sort of took that to heart, you know, so there, we have 220 members. So if I was to see each of them, yeah, that's, that's my year. You know, yeah. if, I was, if it took a day to see each of them, that's a year pretty much gone. Yeah. So... I have to free up enough time in the way that we organize ourselves to enable me to get out there and see at least most of those people on some sort of basis at least once a year. Because quite often that is the difference between them feeling that they're getting their membership value and not getting it. Just just having having the respect. Same room. Yeah, it's just old shoe leather turning yeah, up, knocking yeah. on their door saying, hello, mm. I'm here to see you. I mean, we had, you know, same experience in, in, in Japan. You know, Japan, we hadn't visited Japan as an organization for 10 years. I went last year, went around the six major publishers, lots and lots of goodwill, lots and lots of good feeling coming out of that. And now we've got 30 Japanese people coming to the delegates coming to our next conference. They do appreciate, a lot of markets do appreciate the face-to-face -face time. And, you know, it's hard whether you're in the UK or globally, it's hard on you as an individual because it means you spend a lot of time traveling. Uh, but it is necessary. Mm -hmm. And and don't let anybody tell you, you know, Skype, phone, all the rest of it, those are great, but there's no yeah. substitute for pressing the flesh. I think the starting I think the starting point, you know, for um for what we do, and I think it's the same with it, is 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 isolating what are the what are the things that only you can do? So you gotta you gotta find these sort of four or five things that only that are best done or can only be done by an industry body. Mm -hmm. Because there are loads of things that, that, that the members actually do better themselves. But if it's um, political lobbying for the industry, that's clearly done better through an industry body. Mm. If it's establishing the kind of best in class through an award ceremony, well, you can do your own one, but it means more yeah. if it's the entire industry coming together. But there are not that many of those things. As I say, I think there are probably about four or five. And doing those really, really well, I think, is so important compared to doing what the members do and trying to replicate what they do and kind of mm. interfering with them and annoying them actually because they don't need you to tell them how to sell advertising or sell magazines. That's what they do. And there's a couple of other really interesting factors there as well that are unique to a trade organisation and unique to a trade organisation in media. Media is such a popular industry now in the, in the broadest sense that both of us face enormous competition from commercial organisations who are trying to do the same thing that we're doing not as well as we're doing in most cases because they don't have the, the contacts, but nevertheless, that puts an extra pressure on us. Linked to that is this strange kind of situation that we have uh, philosophically where, as a trade association, you're expected to spend a significant proportion of your time on the good of the industry, to put it that way, uh, which means you have this kind of quasi-charitable aspect to what you do, but of course that doesn't pay the bills because the members don't fund you sufficiently to do all of that stuff. So you have to have a commercial arm as well. So you have this, this strange position where they expect you to be um, uh, charitable and altruistic on one hand, but to be commercially on the ball on the other hand. Uh, and in an industry like media, where you've got 10 or 20 other organizations who are strictly commercial trying to do the same thing, that puts an extra layer of pressure on us and is one of the conversations that we have to have with those senior members. You know, it's, it's look, guys, you want us to do all this stuff for you. That's, that's, you know, this is the price of it. Yeah, there's a difference between being a not-for-profit, non-for-profit, which we yeah. both are, and being a charity, which yeah. we're not. Which we're not, yeah, absolutely. And quite often it's assumed that you are some sort of publishing charity. Yeah. Uh, and we're not. You know, we've got to, we've got to, got to pay, pay the bills. bills absolutely, and, yeah. Uh, you know, we need the funding in to, to do all of this because mm. it doesn't come free. Yeah. So what does the good of the industry mean in practice? What are you, what well, you've are you? got a great example of it at the moment. You know, the, the meetings I've had in the last two weeks, the constant uh, stream of off-the-record discussions that we've had around Facebook and the power of Facebook mm. and the power of that. As a, you know, that I'm not even going to say platforms. It's that platform specifically. 
They want us as organizations to take a role in deciding how the industry responds to Facebook. Um, that's the kind of thing that they're, you know, they're not going to get through a commercial organization. That's something only, mm. back to Barry's point, that's something only we can do. I suppose our equivalent, I mean, it sounds dry, but it's so important. So for 25 years now, you have not had to pay VAT on printed magazines. Mm. And that's largely because of a PPA campaign back then. Um, you currently do have to pay uh, 20% VAT on digital publications or digital products. Mm. So there's this obvious anomaly, uh, what we call the reading tax, where people are being... Uh, penalised by an extra 20% for reading digitally. And there's issues there around literacy and around young people coming through. So the PPA is leading that fight uh, with some success. And, you know, fingers crossed at some point, there will be an announcement that that 20% is being reduced to mm -hmm. zero. Now that is, when it happens, will be the result of years of lobbying yeah. by the PPA. That's what the PPA can do that individual members can't really do. Yeah. PPA is surely the only organisation that, that should be handling that. Yes, absolutely. And I think yeah. if you said to some of our members, what do you pay the PPA for? They, they would say for yeah. things like VAT and digital yeah. VAT and the whole wider issue of lobbying. You know, every, every industry has a membership body. Uh, uh, and, you know, it, my belief is if something happened to the PPA six months after that, they'd start up again. Mm. They would start up again. Yeah. There's an instinct, there's a human instinct that if you're doing this and this guy over here is also doing this, you'll want at some point to come together and mm. compare notes. And the PPA and FIP are just got a giant versions of that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Big networking organizations, you know, that's really crucial for the membership. And Barry's absolutely right. If it didn't exist, you'd invent it. Yeah. So, so what elements do you take from, I mean, what, what are the elements you take from the industry? Um, that you then use to rebrand your organisations. I think you take you take you take an understanding of their businesses. I think that's probably the most important thing. It's crucial. You've, you've, you've got as as industry heads and industry bodies, you've got to understand the breadth of the industry and everything that's happening. In the case of FIP, with a, you know with a global perspective, that means we've got to recognise the markets where printed magazines are still an crucial part of the infrastructure, which they are in a great many markets and markets where they've pretty much cease to exist. You know, two contrasts, I mean, on, on each other's doorsteps. If you look at the markets in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, printed magazines have pretty much vanished from those markets. The major players no longer publish them. Right next door in India, mm. printed magazines are a huge business, booming business still. Mm, so as a global organization, we've got to reflect the needs of both of those, mm. both of those industries and, and economies when mm. we're thinking about how we present ourselves. I would say to people, at least half of what we do will always be print, but the other half has got to be really on the ball with digital media, mm. B2B events and services, consumer events, all the other stuff that our members are doing. I think our equivalent of that in the UK is the difference between consumer publishers and business-to-business -business publishers. Mm. So the PPA split roughly 70-30, 70% consumer publishers, 30% B2B. Consumer publishers are publishing content across all platforms, but it's very hard to ever see a day when you're not going to have Vogue, you know, with his, in his yeah. beautiful print edition. Um, whatever happens, you know, it's a long time, if ever, before that ceases to be. Our business-to-business -business members, by and large, would no longer, a lot of them would no longer publish printed magazines. And it, it, it's, it's, as James said, it's being sort of aware of that split, and those trends and realizing it's never completely black and white. But the, the big change over the last 10 years has been the move from largely entirely print in the UK to a situation now where it's some print and it's a lot of events and it's a lot of digital and social and et cetera, et cetera. And you've got to be on the ball and know what's going on in the market to run one of these bodies. I think it's interesting that both James and I come from the industry. That's, yeah. That is not the case in a lot of trade bodies. Yeah. You know, the, 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 there, are, there are some people who, you know, they'll be chief executive of the Glassblowers Association and then they'll move to the, the grave diggers. <laughs> There's <laughs> a career path for you, Barry. Whereas it's quite novel, you know, for, for the kind of lunatics to take over the asylum as we have done. Yeah. Um, and both PPA and FIP, you know, have got people now running them who, who, who come from that membership. Would yeah. you not, as a member, hope that? the lunatics would be taking over the asylum, as it were. Well, I think, I think it seems obvious once you do it, but it certainly wasn't obvious when no. I was appointed. No. And I think it really helps because 
it's very useful with your members to be able to say, I won a couple of medals once as well. Mm. You know, when I was a bit younger, uh, I won an award. You know, it just adds, it, it, I think it gives a certain cachet that, that, that at least they think the person running this has got some idea of what it is we do, even though it's changed dramatically. I think it was this important statement of intent about the type of person you appoint and when you appoint them as well. I mean, both yeah. Barry and I were appointed at a stage when we weren't at the end of our careers. You know, mm. we were both... Which is how it used to be. Yeah. It, it used to be the, the, the retirement job, you know. Yeah. and uh, Golf clubs came with the job. Yeah. My, 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 my favourite you know, phrase to everybody and certainly internally is we've got to make this work because I can't afford for this to be my last job. You know, I need at least two more before I, after this. So that's a good, a good motivating factor. But I think, you know, when you get that situation where you've appointed somebody directly from the industry, who's still at the prime of their career, mm. it sends an important signal about what you're trying to do with the organization and, yeah. and credit to the, you know, the boards of the PPA and FIP for doing that. Yeah. So you have to display a sort of authenticity I think, I think yeah. you've, got to, you've got to know what the members are talking about. You know, you can't be second guessing. I think that publishers are possibly worrying about this. You've got yeah. to kind of know. Mm. Now that party is just in the blood, having done that. And it's, it's also getting out there and seeing all of these people mm. and listening to them. Because obviously it changes, you know, what they're worrying about now is not what they were worrying about five years ago. And the people have changed. Certainly, I mean, and the people change. You know, my, my favourite stat around that is we ran our last Congress 2017 here in London. Uh, and I think of the five biggest publishers in America, one of them doesn't exist anymore, and the other four have either changed or are changing their chief exec. So, you know, a huge, unprecedented period of change in the senior leadership in the industry. Yeah. And when you've got new people coming in, they want to look at you want them to look at the trade association and go, okay, right, I understand that these mm. guys are thinking like I'm thinking. They're not associated with the old guard. And I think that's that's hopefully that's the case. I mean, the board of the PPA is made up of uh, twenty. Chief executives, myself included, and mm. 19 of the uh, bigger members, chief executives. I've been there nine years and I'm now the fourth longest serving member of that board. So 16 of them have changed over yeah. the nine years, you mm. know, 70, 75%. So it's a fast changing industry. Didn't used to be the case. It's more, no. of a, more it's a very I, recent phenomenon. I, I mean, most of the people who those people replaced had been there forever. Yeah. I think the other big change, which has been a good thing for us, is being there's a much more collaborative group of leaders has emerged mm. yeah. in our industry. So it used to be the the main job of 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 the guy who ran what was EMAP was to kill the guy who ran IPC. Mm. You know, that I worked at EMAP, I know what it was like. You would get up in the morning yeah. and go out and try and kill these people. Mm. I think there is not a kind of sense that that the equivalents of EMAP and IPC, they've got a lot more in common and the people they need to be killing are are not themselves. It may be certain social networks or digital yeah. platforms. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the people that we've got to be competing with now are Google and Facebook and Amazon and all of these giants, not EMAP against IPC or timing against Bauer against Immediate. And that's really changed. And that generation of leaders who have come up they're much more collaborative and they'll sit around a PPA boardroom table or a dinner table and you can sense that. Even when I started 10 years yeah. ago, those people would barely sit in the same room as each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they've all understood the need for collaboration, for working together as an industry. And, you know, it's to use a metaphor, it's, it's not about who can be the fastest growing tree anymore because there's a bloody great mountain overshadowing mm. the forest that, that's going to kill all of you by taking the sunlight away. So, and, and uh, I think that's happened relatively quickly, but it's certainly certainly there now that around the table globally, people understand that they have to work together. Mm. So if our job is to bring people together, which I think it is, yeah, um, it, it's a lot easier to do that if the leaders of those key organisations want to be together. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than, as I say, not that long ago, where it was like, we don't speak to him. Yeah. That's interesting. It's such a competitive industry. It's not that it's not competitive. I'm sure they still do get up in the morning and at a certain level try and knock lumps out of each other, get more advertising than that guy's getting. But at a senior level, I think strategically there is an awareness that this industry has to stick together mm. because there are other sectors and other industries that are only too happy to come and eat our lunch and our dinner and breakfast yep. and supper right. while they're at it. We'll be back after this short message. At FISH, you can find everything that a professional, corporate, charity or consumer organisation needs to provide effective communications, build revenues and strengthen relationships with members to deliver you improved reputation, retention and acquisition. 
Fish are full service if you need us to be, plug and play if not, and we can work from our offices or from within yours. Fish creates engaging content across all platforms. We deliver all the publishing and marketing solutions that completely complement your in-house skills. Fish are part of the full-service content marketing agency, The River Group. This makes us well-resourced in the engine room, but focused, agile, flexible, fast, and cost-efficient on deck. Visit fishcontent.agency today to find out more. Now back to our conversation with Barry and James. Well, I mean, we, we would do an annual survey uh, where we will ask our members, all of them, those who will respond to score us, if you like, uh, out of all the activities that we do. Um, we would, we have pretty good sort of outreach into that membership through all of the various committees and working groups. Yeah. So you sort of assemble it all. Um, you know, and we spend an awful lot of our time, a disproportionate amount of our time, rightly, meeting those members, yeah. either out seeing them or them coming in. So you put all that together, you know, plus a kind of formal survey, plus your gut instinct, plus your breakfasts and lunches and dinners. Yep. And I think you end up with a, with a rough, a, a reasonable, hopefully, approximation of what it is they want you to do. They're not slow in telling you if you get it wrong. Yeah. It's getting them to tell you what they want you to do that's sometimes the harder piece. But it is those four things. It's surveying the members regularly, which tends to reach the operational people, so that gives you one perspective. It's using the board meetings. Like Barry, we've got a board of 40 senior people who, who meet twice a year. Getting feedback from them directly is important. We have committee, particularly International Business Development Committee, who give us feedback on the operations of what we're doing and the, the events that we run. And it's, as Barry said before, it's shoe leather. It's going out there and meeting people and gathering views on, 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 from, the organi- from the organizations themselves. And you've got to remember, none, none of these people wake up in the morning and think about the PPA or FIP. No. You know, they've got full-time jobs, and nor should they. You know, that's our our job. So you've got to strike this balance, which can be difficult to get exactly right, between reminding them that you exist and are doing good work on their behalf and you've got exciting stuff planned and sort of justifying your existence. Yeah, It's a really tricky balance to get right. So you you have to offer them something? You have to show that you're being proactive, right? So you have to... Doing something that adds value. Yeah, you're never going to be able to go into a board meeting and say, okay, guys, tell me what you want me to do. Yeah, you know, it'll be I'm met with with pretty abject <laughs> silence, and, and frankly, there's no reason why they should they should be used mm. for that. What you want is to have a team that can generate a load of dynamic, proactive ideas, so that when you go to the board meeting, we say, "Right, we're going to do these two new things next year." Everybody goes, "Oh, that's a good idea." Yeah, that's that's in tune with what we want. You know, we've mm. done one last year, which was to launch a, a, a series of smaller, free to attend events around the world in different cities, cities that we wouldn't normally go to with our big events. Very well received. Everybody went, yeah, that's a good idea. Can understand the value of that. Gets our businesses more involved with the organization. Next, or this year, 2019, we're looking at a way that we can match media investors and media, media companies that have investment arms with startups. Again, mm-hmm. board is going, great idea. That matches our, our business objectives. So you, you're, you're using that knowledge that you've gained in those four stages of, of feedback gathering to generate new products and new ideas. And you mustn't, I think... That it, Crucially, you mustn't stand still. You mustn't think, well, I did that last year, so I'm going to do it again this year. I mean, the three big things that we do are uh, the political work, which I think they largely leave to us as long as we tell them these are what we think the key issues are. Mm-hmm. Um, membership services, which is kind of the whole broad spectrum, the slightly more traditional part of what a trade body does, so kind of anything that they need doing at any given time. And then the other big Tent polar events. You know, we, we do four big events a year. Uh, we used to do a lot more than that. And each of those four events has to be brilliant because for a lot of our members, those are the only four times that they will interact really with the PPA yeah. mm. beyond the level of chief executive. And I'm always saying to my team, this, this is our chance. You know, this is it. All the work that you do behind the scenes comes to nothing if you run an event and it's not brilliant. You know, it mm. has to be absolutely yeah. out of the box. So, Events for any membership body, I think, are becoming an increasingly huge part of how you communicate. Yeah, they are. And These guys have got their big one coming up in November. You know, I'm yeah. there, and you want it to be memorable. Yeah, well, you only you only get in our case, we get two chances a year to impress the membership, certainly the breadth of the membership. Mm-hmm. Those events are bigger than anything on the commercials in the commercial space, certainly in terms of size. 
So we know that we've got the, 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 the critical mass of the industry there. But as Barry said, it's no good if what they turn up and see isn't blowing them away. Mm. And that's both in terms of the venue, in terms of the way you stage it, in terms of the people you have on stage. You know, they expect a certain level of depth as well. And, you know, we've been to, to uh, other competitor events recently where they've kind of got the, got the audience right and they've got the speakers right, but then they lack the depth in what they're asking. Mm. I think when people come to a PPA event or a FIP event, they expect to hear the definitive take from one of the big organizations in the industry on a particular subject. And, and it's that's a what tough audience, you know. So we, audience, we run yeah. the PPA awards. We're trying to entertain, you know, the editor of GQ, the editor of Vogue, the publisher yeah. of Empire, the editor of Radio Times. You know, these are people who are not short of a night out, you know. Mm. So a for good us, night out. Very very good. So for us to run an event that these people think is worth coming to, every single thing about it has to be first class. So, I mean, I spend a disproportionate amount of time working on the music that will be played when the award winner walks up onto the stage. That sounds minor, but it's things like that, I think, that make a difference between a kind of an okay event and a really memorable event. If you, if you get a chance, here's a good quiz, you get a chance, you should go on Spotify and look at Barry's PPA Awards playlist and see yeah. if you can work out who won based on the track <laughs> that he's chosen. He does have a slightly unfair advantage <laughs> given, his, given his editorial history. But. So I see the editor smash it, so it does give me a bias, but... It's things like that. You know, you can either win an award and just play generic music, mm. simply the best, you know, oh my God. Or if they win uh, an award, you know, and her name is Alison, you play Alison Elvis. What was, the, what was the cheekiest one you did? The one where you thought, geez, I'm going to be in trouble here when they hear this. We, I was overruled, actually. We were, we were doing a, a slimming magazine had won the award, <laughs> and I wanted to play Hungry Like the Wolf. By <laughs> and I was overruled by my team, rightly oh, so, dear. in these times. I think. <laughs> but um, it's things like that. It's just having a little bit of inventiveness, because then on the night, all award ceremonies dip a little bit around award number 12, Innovation of the Year, brackets B2B. You want to sort of at least get the people who are starting to drift off back in Mm-hmm. by making them think, oh, I see what they're doing here. They're matching the, the award to the music mm-hmm. or, or whatever. You invest in the host. You know, you invest in the venue, and James says, because we're at a level where, where people will very easily and readily and happily talk about how crap your award show was if you yeah. don't, if you don't, if you work very hard to make Absolutely. it otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I mean, we, you know, we spend a disproportionate amount of time on the program for the event, which is, you know, consistently the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Ours are slightly different. We, you know, we do, Barry does this as well with PPA, but the biggest event for us is a combination of conference and exhibition. And it's very easy to just think, oh, well, I'll do the conference, do that well, and then everything's fine. We realize that you have to spend an equal amount of time investing in the exhibition as well, mm-hmm. because companies that come and fund the event and pay to exhibit have a myriad of opportunities open to them. And they're all pretty much the same. You know, you get a shell scheme, two by three meters with a booth and some bored salesmen standing there. So we thought, well, how can we do this differently? In London, we created a, a, an indoor market. We built market stalls. We had shoe shine. We, we had a fortune pub. tellers. We had this pub. We built a pub inside the exhibition venue. Uh, for Vegas, we're going to build a replica of the Strip. Oh, yeah. Sounds great, but you know, you know, we're working on the execution. A few blow up wow. palm trees, a couple of balloons. I'm looking forward to losing a fortune on Phipps' behalf. Yeah, don't worry. The, 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 the conference is actually overlooking the casino floor. <laughs> so we're trying to work out how to screen one the from pokies. the other. Yeah, the pokies. But it's crucially, you've got to create an experience and, and something that's experiential yeah. is crucial because they expect something more from you. Mm. And you've got a very, you know, tough crowd. Media is a tough crowd. Media is very used to running this kind of stuff, mm. to attending this kind of stuff. They will only engage with your event if it's as good, if not better, than what they themselves put on or what they themselves attend. Mm. And the feedback you get is incredible. You know, the, yeah. the level of, of complaint from this audience, if you're not careful. Really? You know, you have to cover off everything. Mm. And uh, I think events for any membership body... Uh, is becoming more and more important. And obviously a way of driving revenues as well, mm, but yeah. but you have to put on a good show. I mean, I, I went, I've been going to the PPA Awards for 30 years now. You know, I used to go as a, as a, as a cub reporter or whatever, you know, up for an award. And, and my memory back then was, it, you know, is a lot of you at the Grover House, you put on a black tie, you had a lot to drink, and you had a, you've got to do a lot more than that now. Yeah. And the same with the, we used to run the PPA Conference, that would be once a year, the tribe would all come together. One person would stand up on stage, usually a, a man of a certain age, and he would t- tell the audience what, what was going on. You just can't do that anymore. Yeah. 
It's got a festival, it's got four stages, it's got a hundred speakers, it's got to have a whole variety of people on stage. All of these things, you know, uh, for any membership organisation have changed and you just really have to be very good at it now. Yeah, and you have to be willing and able to change, I think, and that's the big thing is just don't get stuck in your ways. It goes back earlier to what we we're talking about with resources as well. You've got to be really good at managing your resources. I often say to my team, it's incredible that, you know, we put on a effectively a thousand seat three day conference in Las Vegas with two people and a few freelance organizations. You know, if this was remotely, if this was remotely, if this was informal or, you know, somebody B2B organization that does this, I'm going to say for a living, but does this as the main day of their business, they would chuck 20 people at that. Mm. And, you know, there'd be panic in the ranks every week about how they're going to organize this thing. And for us, it's just routine. So it, it's it's about knowing what you're good at and making sure that you use those resources effectively. And if you put on the right show, people, as I said earlier, they think, my God, you know, mm. you, you, you are this incredible global organization with resources left, right, and center. How do we become part of you so that we can take advantage of that for our business? Mm. I think it all comes down in the end to showing your members that what you're doing is delivering value for them. You're, you're delivering value to their business, both in terms of the knowledge that you're sharing mm but crucially in terms of the network that you're presenting to them so mm. that they can go out and find that, as I always say, find that one crucial conversation that could make a multi-million pound difference to mm. their business. And so the, the events these events, are really important part of that. Yeah. They are purely about content. They're purely about they're, you delivering an experience. You don't have to sell your organization. You don't have to... No, they're about three things. They're about content. They're about solutions. So in mm. other words, there's a whole bunch of solutions providers in the room who can help you with some aspect of your business. Those two are important, but I know senior members of our C-suite, you know, people from our, from our um, network who have never seen one of the speeches at the FIP Congress and never been to any of the booths. What they're there for is the networking. They're there to talk to their peers, to talk to people in the industry, mm. and frankly, to do deals. You know, they're this great opportunity to sit in a room for three days with the chief exec of Hearst or Bauer or Burda or whatever the company might be and, and, and have that crucial conversation with them. Mm. Well, that's where a lot of the business is done. And that's yeah. where a lot of the value comes from, I think. Um, you know, we... we, we we started having board dinners about six years ago. So we always had board meetings. And then we said, what about if we were to get these, the same people together, but in a private room in the West End of London and with a few glasses of wine. And, you know, deals have been done and mergers have been formed yeah. and relationships built. Uh, and I often think, you know, that sometimes the conversations at the board dinners are are, are, are more useful and adding as much value as those at the board meeting. Um, and they've become a really important thing in what we do. Even though it's quite hard to define what it is, we yeah. just, what we do is we provide the restaurant, the environment, and a kind of loose agenda. Mm. And we'll bring in maybe a couple of interesting speakers. Yeah. And then quite often they will go off a couple of them afterwards for a drink and, mm. you know, you'll read that six months later they're merging or they're mm. selling a title to each other. And so you provide this framework for the industry to operate. Formally it's, it's, and it, informally. It's the environment, and it's part of the value you give them, right? I mean, with FIP, the FIP board, I know that there's at least two transactions over £100 million each that happened in the last three years, three to four years as a result of board meetings, and it's just the environment. Mm. We didn't sit there and go, right, guys, now is your time to talk to each other about doing deals with one another. You know, they just kind of go off and it sort of happens by osmosis, but they value that, and it's, mm. uh, for, the, for the chief exec level, a really crucial part of what we're offering. It's hard to think with any membership body. You know, you're often asked, what are the hard benefits, you know? Um, and I think those have probably diminished over the years. You know, the, the, it, it's now a mix. It's a whole range of kind of softer benefits. Yeah. The sort of thing we've just been talking about. There are clearly are harder ones, like you get reductions to entering this and you get, you know, cheaper uh, membership of this through it and you get a legal helpline and you'll get sort of support around HR. And it, it, it used to be called a trade body. And most trade bodies offered the same thing. And we still offer some of that, but we're trying to become much more of a membership network. Yeah. And the two things are quite different. Right. So we've got elements of being a trade body. And if people now say to me, you know, you run a trade body, I say, well, we kind of run a membership network. Yeah, that's right. So a network sounds much more personal. And we've talked a lot about how it's more important these days to have a strong personality in, in, your, in your positions. So what is it that defines a good leader of a membership organization? Visibility. Um, I think the confidence and ability to speak publicly and to be a visible face of the organization is really important. Uh, 
you've got to be out and about traveling and meeting people. Mm. You've got to be willing and able to change. I think that's, that's really crucial. You know, you can't, as we said before, it's not a golf club. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not what it used to be. Mm. You've got to be able to come in and respond instantly to what's happening in the industry. But I think that for the first, the first one is, is really the crucial one. You've got to be somebody who's comfortable being a public face for the industry. Now, I wouldn't be so immodest as to suggest that I'm the public face of the global magazine industry, but certainly not afraid to go out there and represent the industry with other organizations, talk on stage, meet senior level people, all those things are really crucial. I think there's, there's never there's never a better example of that old Woody Allen maxim, you know, 95% of life is turning up. I think it was Woody Allen. It's so true. I mean, 95% of the job, I think, for us is, is turning up, turning up at everything. Yeah. You know, I will go along to a leaving do uh, of somebody, no matter how senior or not they might be in one of our membership organizations, if invited. Yeah. A, because they're quite pleased usually that the industry body bloke is there. Mm. And B, because I just think it's really important that we do play a kind of cheerleading, um, drum-banging role. Uh, and I think that visibility and just being there uh, and being comfortable mm. with getting up on a stage. I, I've got a friend in the industry and he said, essentially, Baz, he said, your job seems to be getting up and saying 400 words at every event. I said, that more or less is the job. Yeah. Is getting up and saying, hopefully, a well-chosen four hundred words, but yeah. to introduce somebody who's yeah. then going to come on and deliver something. And I, I, you know, it sounds immodest, but not everyone can do it. That's what I've learned. Mm-hmm. You know, not it's everyone. Not, it's can not do immodest. It. It's true, and not everybody can do it, no. and, and not everybody's comfortable doing it. But you know, that's that's what we have to do in our in yeah. our position. You know, the the the, the cliche: we will turn up to the opening of a paperback <laughs> we, we will actually particularly if it's one of our sponsors yeah or um, if it's in a nice location <laughs> and it, it's it's you know i've done loads of of great jobs this is among, if not the most i'm certainly right up there amongst the most fun jobs i've ever done it doesn't you wouldn't think so and i think you have to make it that yeah and when i got the job i wasn't sure if i wanted the job you know because I think there was, a, there was a sense that the PPA was sort of civil service or magazines and it felt a bit bureaucratic. It's all about the post office or something, isn't it, or retail. Yeah. But whether that was true or not, that was certainly the perception one had when one had been the editor of Smash It's an Empire. And I think you've got to sort of throw yourself into it and be enthusiastic and make, yeah. it, make it fun because it is fun if you're the right person. Uh, but it, it's not for everyone. No. But I, I love it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Same. I mean, it's not, you know... It's certainly not for everyone, but it is immense fun. I mean, you, you've got this incredibly privileged position where you're mm. getting access to, uh, you know, I used to work for the BBC. I worked for the BBC for 12 years. And the great thing about working at the BBC was you could go anywhere in the world and say, hello, I'm from the BBC. Can I have a meeting with you? And they would go, yeah, absolutely. Come, I'll have lunch with you, whatever. FIP is almost the same, yeah. almost the same. You know, you can go to any magazine market in the world and phone up the biggest media company in town and they'll, and they'll see you. And that opportunity to experience a breadth of different organizations, different cultures, different markets, and bring that back to your membership is, is just great. It's great fun. So those qualities uh, that allow you to do the fantastic fun jobs that you do, um, it might be a bit of a philosophical question, but do you think that is intrinsic in yourselves or is that something that you've had to develop over your careers? Oh, it's absolutely something I've had to develop over my career. I started working in a bank I left university. And started, yeah, my first job, I worked for Barclays Bank for four years, four and a half years in a back office job. In, Do you want in, tenors or twenties? That kind of no, 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 or? no. Not even as interesting as that. I worked in a in a, the property services and IT division for four and a half years, and you know sat there on my kind of fourth anniversary working for the bank with watching these you know forty five year old guys around me retiring with twenty years service and a pension and going bloody I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> and was very lucky to get a job at the BBC. I got a job at the BBC through an ad in the Sunday Times. Whoever gets that job, Happy right? days. So, fantastic thing. So, it was something that, you know, I had to develop. And, and I, I started in, you know, as my ex-boss used to describe me as a pointy head, you know, in the background, doing spreadsheets and numbers and stuff like that. And it was only through the course of my career at the BBC and then later working overseas that, that I was able to feel comfortable and confident to go out and be the, the, to have the position that I do. Um, so I think it's something you, you absolutely, I think the, what I would say to people is you never, A, you never know where you're going to end up in your career. And you certainly can't have a career plan because it just doesn't, you know, Not anymore. It, it just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> but secondly, you never know what kind of person you're going to become. I, I'd like to think I'm completely unrecognizable from the 
spotty-faced 21-year-old who went into the Barclays graduate training program in the 90s, you know. I think I've probably, I've probably always been the same. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I, you know, I, I've always liked, I've never found it a bother getting up and talking to people, which is basically an advantage in the job. I think I've had to learn the diplomacy side of the PPA job. So I'd spent most of my career with one publishing house, not all of it, but most of it with EMAP. Uh, and it had a certain culture and a certain way of doing things. And I think when I came to the PPA, I thought, well, I'll just translate that into this. And, and you, you realise quite early on, if you have any sense, that you have to adapt that. Mm, yeah. um, and I also thought I knew everyone, and I realised I knew everyone in EMAP, but there were all these other companies, mm. you know, of equal, equally strong cultures. Um, and getting to know all of those people has been fantastic, you know. And I think the single most important thing I probably now bring to it is I know everybody. So when you're putting together an agenda, you just kind of know the person to ask to get the person who would be the right person to do that. And it's very hard to teach that. Mm. Uh, and it's sort of all up in your head. Um, you know, and at some point that will run out and somebody else will come in with their own ideas. But uh, hopefully not too soon. <laughs> hopefully not, Barry. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I think that's some fantastic inspirational advice uh, for anyone who wants to get involved in membership organisations or who just wants to get involved in business or, or marketing. Join the PPA. Join FIP. Join FIP, yeah. <laughs> FIPP.com for those of you who are interested. www.ppa.co.uk We'll be right back. I got my plug in break. first, Barry. <laughs> Every roadie's pin number. One, two, one, two. Oh, God. <laughs> Brilliant. That's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I'm going to use it, but it's terrible. It's terrible. It's it's so terrible, it's quite terrible. Yeah, absolutely. One, two, one, two. Probably is It's not information overload, it's filter failure. I'm so sick of being told something changed right in front of their eyes. Enough is enough. Like, I'm not getting worse from this point. How are the guys at Barcelona training? How are the guys at Man United training instead of just staying in the bubble? A growing number of big brands are communicating with their customers through podcasts, helping engage on a whole new level. Podcast listeners create strong trust with brands through podcasts. 76% of UK listeners have acted on a podcast ad. Listenership is growing across across all age groups, notably in young adults aged 15 to 24, with around one in five now listening to podcasts every week. Growing statistics like this prove that podcasts are a medium not to be ignored. So, what's stopping you bringing your brands to the conversation? Yeah. River Sounds is a division of the River Group. We work with companies globally to create and distribute original podcasts to augment their branding and marketing efforts. We leverage existing content, such as blogs and social media, to design, plan, create, and distribute high-quality podcasts. We focus on creating podcasts to increase brand awareness, aid in customer education, and help support customer retention. It's time for your brand to make some noise. River Sounds, bring your brand to the conversation. Okay.